So if there's one main idea behind the sermon series so far, it's this idea that God lives with us. When you think, where does God live? It's with us, right? That God creates us, but he doesn't skip town. He doesn't check out. Uh, he, he moves actually closer to us. Uh, that garden that we saw before in the beginning, it's God saying, I'm going to establish a place with you, a connection with you. And that relationship, God and us together, Everything else is meant to flow from that. Everything else flows out of that central relationship, God and us. If I can boil it down to sort of one simple equation, uh, really what we're saying here, what the Bible says, it's God plus you equals everything. God plus you equals everything. Notice the order of this equation is very important. It starts with God before everything else. We make God the focus. We depend on God. We lean on God, especially when we screw up, especially when we sin and we fail. We start with God. And when we start with God, the Bible says, we first God, and then we come to God, and it's God plus us. Everything else flows from that. What the Bible says is, when that becomes a central thing, God plus you, then you actually get everything else. You actually get the best things right from the jump. In the beginning, when it's God in you, God then immediately then brings in the things that help you in this life and lead you into heavenly life. So you immediately get faith, you get hope, you get peace, you get love. God bless you at the center, everything else flows from that. But we know this equation is not always what we're following here, is it? We talked last week about the reality of sin now being on our world. And sin causes us to disrupt these things. God has a plan to deal with our sin. If we're not coming to God, we're not depending on God, we disrupt this equation. We flip it around. We jumble it. And instead, we start with us, with you. You, then God. And notice, again, the order here is important. When we start with ourselves, when you start with you, you're starting with the things that you care about that you think are important, your agenda, your desires, all those different things. And what happens is you start with you, and then you're trying to add God in. And the end result, the Bible says, is nothing. It's nothing. If you try to lead a relationship with God, what happens is you will put things in there that should not be in there. You'll bring things in there that should not be brought in there. You will squeeze God out and you will end up with nothing. You will end up with the faith that you need, the hope you need, the peace you need, the love that you need to make life and community and relationships last and endure. This Sunday, really what we're doing is is looking at how that happens with Solomon's temple, how the equation gets flipped. As we've been saying, God wants to live with us, but it starts with God, then us, and everything else flows from that. And what I want to argue with Solomon's temple is we see this flipped. Now, some background on Solomon's temple we're talking about here. You know, of course, last week we saw the tabernacle, God's way of establishing a relationship, ongoing relationship with Israel. When the reality of their sin, God's saying, I'm going to still have a relationship with you. The tabernacle is how that's going to happen. Eventually, King David comes in the scene, and King David sees the tabernacle, and it's basically sort of an elaborate tent. And David's like, we can do better than this. We need to build a house for God. And God tells him, I don't need a house, but I'm going to let Solomon do it. I'll let Solomon build a house for me, a temple for me. Solomon is David's son. He becomes king. And that's where the equation changes. As we said, the equation is first God and then you. God speaks and acts. You listen and you respond. You respond with trust, with obedience, and everything else flows from that. God plus you, everything else flows from that. That was true in the garden. The Bible doesn't start with humanity, right, and saying, okay, where do we find God? In the beginning, there's God, right? 
In the beginning is God, and God drives everything. God initiates everything. God speaks to Adam and Eve, and they're supposed to respond, right? They're supposed to listen and respond with trust and obedience. With the tabernacle, we see the same thing. God is the one who initiates the tabernacle. God is the one who carries it out. The tabernacle is built under God's explicit and direct instructions. God is still doing the same thing. I want life with you, and here's how it's going to happen. And so we see in Exodus 25, verses 8 to 9, uh, he says, let them, he's speaking to Moses, make me a sanctuary that I, that I may dwell in their midst, exactly as I show you, Moses, concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all its furniture, so shall you make it. So if you read Exodus 25 to 31, one of the things you'll see, verse after verse after verse, it says, God said this to Moses. God said, now you're going to build it like this. And God said, now you're going to do that. And now you're going to bring these materials. And now you're going to design it this way. Over and over, God explicitly guiding and directing how the tabernacles be built. And then Moses communicates that to the people. Here's what God said, how it's supposed to be built. And it says in those, ver- in those chapters, and the people listened, and they did it, and they built it exactly how God said it's supposed to be built. God even says, I'm going to equip special workers to make and design it so it's going to be exactly how I want it. I'm going to empower them so it's going to be the way you want it, I want it to be. And the people respond joyfully, willingly. They build the tabernacle in the way that God wants it to be built. And last week, one of the things you see, the end result of that is a tabernacle that's sort of an elaborate tent that's pretty spare and basic. And that's the point, isn't it? The tabernacle is sort of spare and basic because I think God is saying, look, this is about me and a relationship with you. Right? It's a holy, sacred place where the only thing you should be thinking about as you look at the tabernacle is, we, have, we serve a holy God. It's amazing that we can be in a relationship with him. The tabernacle is even physically placed at the center of the Israelite community. Again, the equation is God plus you and everything else flows from that. That's represented, I think, by the tabernacle being at the center of the community. It starts with God and us in relationship with God and everything else flows from that. There's a big change when we start paying attention to the temple and how the temple is built. This is in 1 Kings 5 to 8. And if you read it, if we contrast that with Exodus 25 and following and then 1 Kings 5 and following, the contrast is, is really significant. Exodus, God's doing it. God's driving it. In 1 Kings, it's Solomon. There's nothing mentioned about Solomon says, so God, what, what's, what's the plan here? How do you want me to do this? How should this look like? How should this be designed? Because that's what happened with Moses. That's not what we see here. The passages are dominated by Solomon. Rather than saying God built this or God established this or God directed this, what we see in 1 Kings 6.1, it says, he, Solomon, began to build the house of the Lord. And then it continues from there. It says, and then Solomon built this and then Solomon built that. Summarized in verse 14, it says, so Solomon built the house and furnished it. Very different from what we see with the tabernacle. And in fact, even the people, the way the people are used in, in the Exodus chapters, we see the people willingly, joyfully responding, saying, we're going to build it exactly how God says it's to be built. With Solomon, it says Solomon drafted 300,000 men, <laughs> forced them over multiple shifts to go to Lebanon and to build the temple the way he wanted to be built. Uh, it's kind of similar, isn't it, to, to what Pharaoh did with Israel, isn't it? Forced labor to build these things. And, and the temple, even, and what Solomon builds, it's not even the centerpiece of the community. The temple becomes part of this big royal complex, right? So you have the temple, 
But then right alongside it is Solomon's palace, which is way bigger. And you have a palace that he built for one of his wives, Pharaoh's, uh, one of Pharaoh's daughters. He builds two other huge buildings, the house of the forest of Lebanon, the house of pillars. It's almost like the temple is like the little sister to this big sort of palace temple complex. You know, what we're seeing here is way different. We put ourselves first. What happens is we bring in our own baggage. We bring in our own stuff, our own desires, our own intentions, our own agenda. When we start with God, to the difference when we start with God is like we come to God. And imagine like there's a, there's a home and we come to the home where God is. What God says is, look, you don't need to bring all that stuff in. You can leave it at the doorstep. Come in. What God is doing, he invites us to come in and have space and live with him. But what, part of that process is cleansing us of all the things that we think we need to hold on to. All the things we've got to bring in with us. God says, look, just trust me. Come in. I've got everything you need. Come into where I'm at. The difference when we start with us all is a reverse. It's like we establish our home and we're trying to invite God in. The problem is, you've seen like that show Hoarders, right? It's, it's, it'll gross you out. <laughs> all right? It'll gross you out. I watched it once. I'm like, I can't do this again. Right? <laughs> I mean, it's a, it's, a, it's a show about, a, one of those reality shows about people who just can never throw anything away. And so, like, you have, like, trash everywhere. Uh, one, one place, like, there's, like, magazines stacked everywhere. There's, like, nowhere, no place to sit. Like, in a sense, really, spiritually speaking, sin makes us hoarders, right? You have your home, your life, and you fill it with your obsessions, your addictions, your idolatries, all these different things. And what we tend to do is say, okay, God, I, I, I'm, I'm, God I'm interested in you, so come in here. You need to fit into to where I'm at. God can't fit in there. God doesn't come to our home. We go to God's home, right? Our desire for comfort or exception to be like other people, all these different things will eventually push God out. God can't even, God's not, God is not someone who's going to squeeze into the corner surrounded by trash. Eventually pushes God out and destroys the relationship we have with God. I want to argue that's I mean, essentially what we have with Solomon. Solomon's saying, I'm going to build a house and God, I want you to show up. God is gracious and begins relationship with Israel, but eventually it falls apart. But let's sort of get a little more into detail on, on the temple and the different ways in which the temple is built in contrast to the tabernacle and, and the ways in which that show how Solomon and the nation of Israel was saying, us first, you, then God, right, as opposed to God and then you. So initially, the layout of the temple, it's, it's similar to the tabernacle. You have the three sections. You had the courtyard, you have the holy place, you have the most holy place of the holy of holies. Uh, and you have the same furniture that's there, right? The, you have the, the altars, the altar of incense, the, the bronze altar that's outside in the courtyard for sacrifices. You have the wash basin in the courtyard. You have the Ark of the Covenant, of course, the table of the bread of presence, the menorah, or the lampstand. So you have all those things. The thing is, though, with Solomon, he goes way bigger. It's like home makeover and steroids, right? He's like, I see what you did with the tabernacle. Let's go bigger and better and a lot more stuff. So the size of the tabernacle, the, the thing in orange is uh, Solomon's temple. The circle, the, the one that's in brown is the tabernacle. You can already see how much bigger the top of Solomon's temple is. And next week, what's in blue is Herod's temple, the time of Jesus. <laughs> right? it's, they went, it just, just get bigger and bigger and bigger, right? You can see the sort of the comparison to the size of a, of a football field down below there. Here's a, sort of another look at it. Um, the tabernacle is, is in the foreground there. And you can see the temple is just immediately bigger, right? Immediately more flashy, right? It's a supersized version of the tabernacle. Uh, the temple 
has this huge porch area now, right? It's not just a courtyard, it's this huge porch area. Uh, the altar is way bigger, right? The basin for washing uh, that's right in the center there, it, it's, it's almost like a mini swimming pool, right? It's made of bronze, elevated in 12 bronze bowls. They call it the sea basin now because how much more water it holds, right? It's not as if this is needed. God did give explicit dimensions on here's the water that you need for washing, for the priest to wash the blood and all the things that they did as part of the sacrifices. Solomon says we can go bigger. So this is something that was seven and a half feet deep. It would have held 10,000 gallons, right? But then Solomon says, like, I know we got this, but let's add 12 more smaller versions, right? Like a little family. So all alongside of the temple are these uh, smaller water basins, right? Each of them holding about 200, 240 gallons of water, 12 of them, uh, six on each side. Solomon then also adds storerooms on this, each side of the temple. Right? So on each side, there's three floors of storerooms that would have held like olive oil, incense, wood. Uh, I mean, it makes sense. That's incredibly convenient, right? Because each day they're going through a lot of wood and incense and all these different things for the, for the, for the uh, daily sacrifices. So for the priest to have it right there next to the temple, that works. That's efficient. That's convenient. Here's the thing. When God designed the tabernacle, he did not say to put these in there. It's not like God forgot. All right. They, act, they needed storerooms, but God was basically saying, no, they're going to be outside of this place. This is a sacred, holy place. All right. do, gather your stuff that you need and then bring it in here to do it. It's not going to be right alongside the holy of holies in the holy place. But Solomon says, I, 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 have, I have some better ideas here. I'm going to establish a storeroom right next to, to, to the temple. There's now a huge entrance. Remember, before it was like a, a, a tent, right, with a curtain. But now there's a huge entrance uh, with two bronze columns on either side. You can see those columns there. 27 feet high, 5 feet, 9 inches in diameter. What's interesting is First King spends the most amount of verses describing these columns. There's no real use for them. In other words, again, God never said, I need columns in any house he built for me. <laughs> There's, these are so huge, I mean, they were even given names. Boaz and Akim, right? Imagine, two columns have names. They're so huge and so big. Now let's sort of move inside the temple. Uh, now we're in the holy place. And immediately you can tell this place is blinged out, right? It's like Solomon wants to say, look how rich we are. Look how much we have. It's a much bigger place. As a reminder, um, uh, well, let me first of all put, mention a couple other things before I sort of compare it to the tabernacle. Um, remember, the tabernacle had basically fabrics mostly in there. Uh, cheaper wood was used. Uh, cheaper acacia wood is used. Solomon goes with the more expensive Lebanon wood. Harder to get, way more expensive. Overlays gold over all of it. And as a, let me show you the picture now. The comparison, remember last week, this is what the inside of the tabernacle looked like. Right? That was God's explicit design. God said, design it like this. It should feel like this. I think God's intentional. I want to build it a certain way. I want it to feel a certain way. Look at that, and now look at this. Here is instead what the temple is. And remember, it has some of the same stuff, right? It's got the altar of incense, the bread of the table of presents, the menorah. But remember, Psalm is always going bigger and more. So instead of one menorah, one lampstand, uh, Solomon adds 12, right, or actually uh, 10, five on each side of the room, right, five on one side, five on the other, instead of just the one that God had. Um, instead of one table, according to at least one account, eventually there were 10 golden tables, right? You only really needed one to hold the bread, 
Solomon eventually adds 10. The curtain that was supposed to be between the holy place and the most holy place, it's not a curtain anymore. It's a gold door that's engraved with cherubim, palm trees, flowers. And there's one other sort of interesting improvement worth mentioning. At the top, so this is a huge, remember, we're in a smaller tent before. Now it's a huge space. At the very top, Solomon has windows built, which has brought more light into the area. Again, convenient, helpful, right, for what they're doing in there. But remember how God had designed the tabernacle before. We talked about this last week. The tabernacle was, was meant to be essentially dark except for the light from the menorah, filled with incense smoke to emphasize the holiness and sacredness of God. This is different, isn't it? It's way different. It would have felt different. It would have been different. Finally, uh, the most holy place or the holy of holies. Before, in the tabernacle, it's just the Ark of the Covenant, right? Place the high priest would come in once a year to make atonement for the nation. Solomon adds two huge cherubim, like would have filled the entire room. Their wings covered the span of the room. Uh, and, and the Ark of the Covenant, remember, the most holy place was meant to just have one focus, just one thing, this Ark of the Covenant that's God's throne, right? It doesn't need anything else. But now it's like this, this little box, right, a little coffee table standing in between these two statues that Solomon has built in there. Let's sort of go back and talk about something I, I mentioned before. You remember I was talking about David saying, hey, uh, look at this expensive palace I'm living in. A house of cedar is what he says. And God is still living in a tent in the tabernacle. We can do better. Let's make this better. And God says, you don't need to do that. I'm going to let Solomon build me a house. What's interesting what God says about this, about what David had said. Here's, here's what he says. God says to David, I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I've been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I've moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? God is saying, I've never, ever asked for this. And I think there's a point God is making here. Because it's not like I need an expensive house or even want it. Now, I'm going to let Solomon build something. But I think God's point is like this, this an approach like this, can pull away and distract from the simple relationship I need to have with my people. God plus you. The tabernacle is simple and spare and basic because a relationship with God is just that. God plus you. Not anything else coming before it. Not anything else squeezed in between. God plus you. Everything else flows from that. The tabernacle is a way of focusing on that. It's not God saying, I don't want you to have nice things. <laughs> nice things are bad. No, God's not saying that. But when God is saying, when it comes to a relationship with me, it doesn't start there. God is saying, we have a relationship. We can have a relationship. You can have a relationship with God that's not dependent on how much you have, how successful you have. Think about how powerful that is, how, how that opens things up. How well you've done, whether you've had an up year, and we're coming to the end of this year. Some of you, 2023 has been great. Others of you, you cannot wait till 2024. And here's the thing, the one thing that's constant is God can still be close to you, intimate with you, and with you, no matter how 2023 happened. So it's a big deal for Solomon to do what he does, to build this temple, to make it out of expensive wood, to put gold all over it, right? In the tabernacle, there's only basically three things that were covered over in gold. Here we have a ton of things. Everything is covered with gold. Again, we ask, why does Solomon do this? 
I think it's because he's starting with himself. And with Solomon, the baggage that I think Solomon brings, and, and Solomon was gifted with a lot of amazing things from the jump. He's given wisdom, right? God says, I want to bless you. I'm going to be with you. But I think very quickly Solomon becomes interested in saying, I want to be the biggest and best out there. His baggage is, is looking at others around him and saying, I want to be like them, but better, bigger and better. And the tabernacle, the temple actually shows this. All the things I just sort of pointed out to you, how much gold there was, how much bigger it was, the windows that were in the, uh, the holy place, the storerooms. Here's the thing. It follows the model of the other pagan temples in the area. The other pagan temples often put storerooms right by the sacred place, right? Uh, they would have set it up. It's very similar to the way that Solomon set up the temple. It's like Solomon's saying, we have this little rinky-dink tabernacle. We, we got to be like the other people, but bigger and better. Starting without God, isn't it? Starting with a God, without God, and trying to squeeze God in, ends up changing us. It ends up making us look like the world around us. And I would argue, for those who are believers, when we do that, we actually end up being worse than the world around us. That's a remarkable thing, I think, uh, for those who, who have any sort of spirituality, any faith in God. It's like we, the degree in which we begin to push God out and start with ourselves, I would argue we end up looking worse than the world around us. So the world around us is willing to give in to anger, abuse, and violence. It's crazy to me to see believers being more abusive, more angry, more violent. <laughs> We have a world addicted to sex, alcohol, drugs, food, all sorts of different things. Uh, it's amazing to me to see those who say they believe in God far outdoing the world in all those things. And why is that the case? It's because I think what makes us do it worse is because we sort of, we have a sort of spirituality that's there. Believers, people who say they believe in God or they're Christian, they have a kind of spirituality that's there. But we're willing to use hypocrisy and self-righteousness to cover uh, the sins that we have that look like just the world around us. It's not as bad as everyone else that is. And we want to downplay it and, secret, and put it in secret and compromise and do those different things when in fact, it's not just as bad, it's worse. And we use hypocrisy and compromise allows you to do far worse things than those around you. It's like this it's sort of an expansive tent that allows you to do way more things, way more things, way more angry, abusive, lustful, violent things than those around you because you have a, a way to cover it up. Those without God don't have an easy way to cover it up, right? And, and I think that almost, sort of, <laughs> that almost sort of makes you mute a little bit yourself. It's amazing to me to see how much farther those who, who would say they hold to a God can, are willing to go and do go. And in all this, whoever you are, the reality is the Bible is always wanting us to be honest about ourselves. The Bible has this concept called our sin nature. And it's a way of just saying we have a natural tendency to start with ourselves first. A natural tendency to think of ourselves first and our own desires and our own interests and our own obsessions and our own addictions. We have a natural tendency to center those things and to try to fit God into that. What happens is God does not fit into that. God will get pushed out. He does get pushed out. That's what happens with Solomon. By the end of his reign, we're told that Solomon is building uh, high places, basically places for people to serve other pagan idols all over Jerusalem. East, within sight of the temple, would have been a high place dedicated to Shemaph and Molech. Shemaph and Molech, uh, to worship them, involved child sacrifice. So imagine, probably on a clear day in the temple, you could have looked up to the east of Jerusalem and seen that high place. Maybe even heard or seen some of the child sacrifice going on a really clear day. Eventually, idols are even put right into the courtyard of the temple. Here's a question I want to ask you. 
Where's your relationship with God happening? If you have any interest in God or thought about God, as you begin to explore what it means to have a relationship with God, where is it happening? Is it happening in God's house or your house? Is it happening in a place, a life that God has established for you? He's already built it for you and he's saying, come and enjoy it with me. I know you well. I know you better than you know yourself. Just come and trust me and come into this place I've set for you. Is it, is it a house that God has established or is it a house that you've established for yourself? And you're trying to squeeze God in. And God's, God's looking from the outside and he's like, you don't realize what a mess this is. You don't want this. Don't want this. Imagine you got a, sort of a two-seater car. And God pull, pulls up. He's in the driver's seat. And he's like, hey, jump in. <laughs> I've got great places to take you. Right? Are you going to listen and jump in and go where God takes you? Or are you going to try to push God out of the driver's seat? <laughs> and say, this is a nice car. <laughs> I think I know I want to go. <laughs> Here's the thing. God is never a passenger. He doesn't do that. Right? If you try to push God out of the driver's seat, he's not going to sort of skip over to the next side and be like, okay, this is what happened. <laughs> to push God out is to push God out. And the Bible is very clear. To drive a car, to drive your life without God will lead to eternal damnation. You will drive yourself to ruin, right into hell. So what do we do? Uh, let's hear from God on this. Um, and it's interesting. Here's what God said while Solomon is building the temple. He's doing all the things, these things. And here's what God says in the midst of him doing this. It's like God trying to do a wake-up call to Solomon and to really the people in general. Here's what he says. He says, now the word of the Lord came to Solomon. He said, look, concerning this house that you're building, if you will walk in my statutes and obey my rules and keep all my commandments and walk in them, then I will establish my word with you, which I spoke to David, your father, and I will dwell among the children of Israel and will not forsake my people Israel. You notice here, God doesn't praise Solomon. He's like, whoa, look what you did. Man, I've always wanted a house with expensive wood and gold. Like, yes, finally. God barely mentions the temple. What's God doing here? He's reminding him, this is about a relationship between you and me, between Israel and me. Here's the key for a relationship. Here's the key for us to have life together. Be faithful to me. Obey me. Live according to what I've said. I've, uh, live according to what I've told you. God is saying, it starts with me. Start with me, listen, be faithful, and then I'll be with you. Like I said, God plus you is everything else. And the reason that works is because, you can see here in these verses, God is saying, if you're faithful to me, you start with me, you depend on me, you let me take the lead, you let me take the initiative, you follow me, you listen to me, you obey me, you get me. I live with you, and to get God is how you get everything, because God is everything. God brings everything. And we get God, we get faith, we get hope, we get love. And by the way, then we also get all the other stuff we think is important. We eventually will get status. God talks about us reigning in heaven. That's a better status than everything else. God says we will inherit the earth. So all the money and riches, like God's like, that's easy. You eventually get all those things. God is saying, I want to give you the most important thing first, which is me. And this is, brings in really the significance of Jesus, isn't it? Why it's so important and significant that we understand and believe that God has come to us in Jesus Christ. Jesus is God, fully God and fully man. By fully man, it's a way of saying God has closed the gap between us and him. God's realizing it's hard for us to come into that house. And so he's like, he's bringing the door right in front of you. 
the door to come in to live with God is right in front of you. That door is Jesus. He's as close as the breath of your prayer. And because Jesus is fully God, that's why instantly we know, oh, this is life with God. This is all that we are meant to have. All that we are meant to be given. It's life with God, and it comes in Jesus Christ. And God is saying and inviting us in. God plus you leads to everything else. Let me end with this. This is a, something God says later on. So the temple has been built. There's multiple kings later, and most of the kings, they're not following God. They're not worshiping God. And God essentially makes this a reminder yet again. Here's what it's about. This is Hosea chapter 6, verse 6. God says, look, for I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice. The knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. I want you to notice, God is, it's all relational terms. The point is not the rituals. The rituals can become self-focused, flashy, self-indulgent, more about us. Me first. You first. The point is relationship with God. Simple, direct, unfiltered, to relate to God in committed faith and love. I think this is the significance of, of one of the more interesting metaphors that we have in the Bible of relationship between us and God. It's the metaphor that says God has come to us in Jesus in order to essentially marry us. It's sort of a crazy thing to think about, right? That God wants to marry us. But again, it's a metaphor, and it's, but a metaphor of its real spiritual significance. The Bible is basically saying God becomes, is Jesus, comes to us Jesus, and by saying he wants to marry us, it's a way of think, emphasizing that God is taking the initiative to love us, to love us and move towards us in committed love. It's a way of the Bible saying he realizes our tendency to sin. He realizes our tendency to put ourselves first, to try to invite God into our lives. And so God is that groom who says, I'm going to find my bride and initiate love towards her and wash her clean. He's going to establish a relationship of committed love, which cleanses, cleanses us of all the ways in which we tend to put ourselves first and brings it back to that simple relationship between us and God. God plus you leads to everything else. God moves towards us as Jesus and marries us to make that the case because he's so committed to us knowing him and enjoying him forever and ever and all the other things that get added. This is life with God. Let's pray um, that that would be true, um, that we would realize we can move towards God and Jesus and find all that he intends for us. Lord, Thank you for the time we've had together. Thank you for the opportunity just to, again, look at these places where uh, you're said to live and see, Lord, all that means, Lord, uh, that, Lord, you tend to have close, intimate relationship with us. Lord, each week we're reminded of how we tend to screw that up and mess it up. Each week we're reminded of how you've had a plan and made a way uh, to fix things, to establish opportunity for us, Lord, to be close to you and connected to you uh, in a way that lasts forever. We thank you for how you've closed the gap in Jesus. Uh, and so I just pray, Lord, um, as you pull up to us, as Jesus comes to us, Lord, help us to hear his call to leave our house and move into his, to step into the car that he drives, and to know, Lord, that everything else, Lord, flows from that. Um, we're thankful, Lord, that you would love us this way. And I just pray for every single person here, Lord, that uh, wherever they are in their spiritual journey, wherever they are in understanding who God is and who Jesus is, um, I pray. Uh, they would see the simple contrast, Lord. Maybe just have more honest sense of themselves um, and uh, a willingness, Lord, to see the, the gracious invitation you give, uh, the opportunity to be with you and to be with you forever. Uh, we thank you for these things, and we love you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray, amen.